Your body is an animal, doesn't ask for much. A little music and a soft touch. Why don't you let it out to play? Your heart is in a birdcage, singing in your chest. You wanna shut it up, but give it a rest. You're gonna die one. I died one day in 1989. You may have heard me tell the story before. I've uh, told it on a podcast called Risk, which uh, you can hear um, <clears throat> either at their site or on, I think there's a link to it on my site, chrisryanphd.com. It's on the homepage. You can hear the story there. Uh, I'm going to tell the story again today in a slightly different way because I found a paper I mentioned uh, in the last episode that I was going through a box of uh, papers in Spain that I hadn't looked at in years. And I found a paper I wrote in 1994 uh, for a class I was taking at CIIS in San Francisco, the California Institute of Integral Studies, which is where I thought I was going to be doing my my PhD, um, but I ended up taking a few classes there and then transferring to uh, Saybrook, largely because at Saybrook I could get the PhD, but also live in Spain, and um, so I was sort of uh, happy to to find that. But that's another story. Anyhow, I wrote this uh, paper. It's called "Death Among the Ruins." It was a final paper for a class on living, dying, and grieving that I took at CIAS. Um, and I thought I would read the paper. I'll skip the parts that refer to classroom readings or discussion or whatever that would just be boring for you. But I thought it might be interesting, um, both because it's an interesting story and because, uh, like the last episode where I was reading something I'd written before, it's interesting, and maybe this is very egocentric, maybe it's not interesting to you, but to me it's interesting to see how someone's voice changes over time and uh written voice and um you know I'll make a couple comments about writing a lot of you have written to me and asked me to to get into the writing process talk about creative process and all that kind of thing you know I I shy away from that because again it just seems egotistical I mean I've written one fucking book and what makes me an expert you know <clears throat> but um, since you're asking for it and this whole thing is kind of strangely egotistical in some ways, I might as well surrender to it, I guess. In for a penny, in for a pound, right? Anyway, so uh, yeah, I'll start reading the paper. It, it, it begins with a line I really like, I have to say. And this is one of the things. Somebody, I don't remember who it was, but some famous author said, I hate writing, but I love having written. Uh I think that pretty much sums up my experience. Actually, sitting down and writing is like, for me, it's like it's like mining. It's like you get you have to, it takes you a long time to get to the place where the actual work has to happen. You you know you go down, you crawl through the dirt and the darkness and blah blah blah, and you finally get there and you're already tired and you don't want to do it and it's a pain in the ass and it's it's you're sweaty and you're cramped. It's, I mean, this is all metaphorical, of course. And, um, yeah, there's nothing good about it. 
but then you come back up to the surface and you bring things with you you know these opals that you found down there and you can't even tell in the darkness if they're any good but when you get back up to the sunlight and you see the way these things glitter in the light sometime and the and the color that's hidden in them and the the miracle of the stuff that happens in the subconscious when you're in a creative process that's pretty fucking cool and and again one of the reasons you hear me sort of whining about not wanting to get ego involved in this is i think that ego stops that process from happening and so there there's got to be an insistence on humility for that to continue somehow um and and again even talking about it is kind of a, a weird thing but anyway um so here i am reading a paper i wrote 20 years ago and it gives me pleasure to to see things like okay the first line is i gravitate away from the earth i like that line i like the way i use the word gravitate to in to mean the opposite of what it means in a way but still to have the the hope the helplessness of gravity right you can't fight gravity gravity does what it does it always does it and you can't change that right but gravity pulls you toward the earth so i'm using the inevitability of gravity but in the opposite direction i gravitate away from the earth always have When my mind retreats inward, seeking shelter, I often find myself climbing toward an exposed solitude, responding to my nature as helplessly as a sinking stone. So you see the way I did all that. It's a little pretentious, but it's all about upward, downward, upward, downward, inward, outward, right? When my mind retreats inward, seeking shelter, I find myself climbing toward an exposed solitude. So the opposite of shelter, right? Um, Responding to my nature as helplessly as a sinking stone. Boom. I've lived on dusty rooftops in midtown Manhattan and central Barcelona. I spent two splendid months perched like a peacock on a water tower overlooking the Rajasthani desert. Given my propensity to percolate upward, It's not surprising that the death I'm about to relate occurred between flowering treetops and a darkening jungle sky. I arrived in Tikal, Guatemala, a few days before the full moon of April 1989. I had been consciously drifting around the world since finishing my undergraduate degree at Hobart College six years earlier. I decided to spend my 20s making myself available to whatever teachers and teachings I happened upon in unlikely places. My only intention was to live and die without regret. I knew that the only true choice in life is to open one's eyes or not, but I also knew that opening my eyes in this sense is the task of a lifetime and not accomplished in a blink. Studying literature in college, I was profoundly moved by the American transcendentalists, Thoreau, Emerson, Whitman, Melville, all of whom wrote of the many ways in which modern society avoids truth. Modern society seems to be a celebration of all the things that lead away from the truth, that make truth hard to live for and discourage people from even believing that it exists. 
So you see, um, taking a break from the paper here, I'm still beating the same drum, right? The book I'm writing right now is about that sentence that I wrote 20 years ago. How modern society pulls us away from the truth. Anyway, back to the paper. Oh, I should I should say, by the way, there's a, a quote at the beginning of the paper, uh, an epigraph, I think it's called, um, from William Blake, who's one of my a poet I, I like a lot. He's very, he was a strange, mystical, crazy, interesting guy. Um, you know, he actually gave the, the doors their name in a strange, indirect way. He wrote something about to see eternity in, a, in an instant and the universe in a grain of sand. <clears throat> uh, if the doors of perception were cleansed, we'd see eternity in, in an instant and the universe in a grain of sand. And um, Aldous Huxley took his title, The Doors of Perception, from that line of William Blake's. I think Blake lived in the 1700s. <clears throat> and then, um, you know, uh, Jim Morrison took their name for the band uh, from the Aldous Huxley line. So this all came from William Blake. Anyway, what I quoted from Blake is um, uh, from, it's a, a long poem he wrote called Songs of Innocence and Experience. He says, what is the price of experience? Do men buy it for a song or wisdom for a dance in the street? No, it is bought with the price of all that a man hath, his house, his wife, his children. Wisdom is sold in the desolate market where none come to buy and in the withered field where the farmer plows for bread in vain. Anyway, back to the paper. I'd arrived in Guatemala riding a wave of inexplicably good fortune that seemed to inflate the careless sense of invulnerability typical of a young man. I was top-heavy with insights arrived at too easily, and tragedies too often escaped. I can see now that I was corrupted by my luck, which I mistook for power. Although I was in some ways correct in seeing myself as a seeker, I was also the sort of ignorant tourist who wanders through unfamiliar jungles wearing sandals. As I climbed to the top of the highest temple in the jungle a few hours before moonrise, I was ripe for a fall. So again, the up, down, right? Climbing, falling. There are many things I miss from those years, but more than anything else, I think, I miss the hours spent open to the sky. I have friends who have never seen a star fall. One night in Pushkar, Rajasthan, which is in India, I gave up and fell asleep after counting about 30 of them. That was the night I watched two simultaneously falling stars intersect, forming an instantaneous cross in the blackness above me. Another night, during a 10-day Vipassana meditation retreat in Spain, I was wandering through the silent garden, trying to find a way to understand how to love without desire and clinging. I glanced up at the stars just as one of them dropped out of the sky. As suddenly as that light was lost, I understood that the love and gratitude I felt in that moment comprised the lesson I was seeking. I hadn't been anxiously awaiting the event, nor did it occur to me to be disappointed that it had lasted just an instant. That is the nature of falling stars, 
and of everything else. In those years, I was never startled by a full moon, as I sometimes am now when it flashes between buildings as I walk home from the bus. I planned my traveling by the moon. One moon lit the Taj Mahal, the next glittered off the Ganges at Varanasi. On this trip, we'd spent the previous full moon at Monte Alban near Oaxaca, Mexico, with the silent temples all to ourselves, interrupted only by the chanting voice of a woman we never saw. Now, a month later, we were in Tikal just in time to begin another cycle. I was traveling with my lover, friend, Anna, whom I'd known since college. We'd been offered some of the hallucinogenic mushrooms that grew in the surrounding jungle, and having read that the Mayan priests used these plants in their ceremonies at Tikal, we felt it was a good idea to add them to our experience. So we ate the mushrooms and set out for the highest temple in the jungle. Temple 4, also known as the Jaguar Temple, rises well above the jungle canopy. To reach the uppermost ledge, you must scramble over roots, rough stairs cut into the limestone, and pipe ladders drilled into the side. We arrived in plenty of time to take a few photographs before watching the sunset in the west, simultaneous with the moon rising blood red out of the east. The dark jungle below us echoed with the din of screaming monkeys. To the north, Heavy, churning storm clouds flashed and rumbled toward the east, leaving a small band of open sky just above the horizon. There were several people on the ledge, and when the moon passed behind this cloud bank, leaving only a dull reddish glow, several of them decided to descend. Due to the effects of the mushrooms, Anna and I decided to stick around for a while. I stood at the edge of the ledge, lighting the ladder for the others. When they reached the bottom, some 50 feet below, I turned back toward her. I felt the sting like an electric shock. I don't know why I didn't jump away from it or react in any physical way at all, but it would have been a fatal reaction as I was standing at the precipice of a long, lethal drop. I shined the light near my foot and saw the scorpion immediately. I've never written about this experience before, and as I write, I'm noticing how this night occupies a unique level in my memory. Recalling it now, I can feel the solidity of the entire experience, the inevitability of it all. So many of my reactions, or lack of reaction, are uncharacteristic and mysterious to me. I walked back to Anna and told her that I'd just been stung by a scorpion. Two men were sitting on the other side of the ledge and they heard the edge in my voice, and they came over. None of us knew if these scorpions were dangerous or not. One of the men, who was English, but lived in southern Spain, said that they could be fatal where he lived. He said it in a joking sort of way, but not really jokingly. I remember thinking that part of him was trying to comfort me, while another part was just trying to inform me. He was trying to provide the two things I needed desperately, oblivious to the fact that in this case, information and comfort were in opposition. While we were talking, a young Guatemalan guard showed up. He was carrying an old rifle to protect himself from the jaguars, he said. The English guy was joking again, making fun of how old the rifle was. We told the guard what had happened. He looked at my dirty feet in their ridiculous sandals and said, Hay muertos, which means there are deaths. 
I'm going to interrupt here just to note something that I've told this story many times over the years. And at some point, the hay muertos changed to son letales. Um, they're lethal. I don't know when that is. Don't know why. Uh, and I have to suppose that since this was written five years after it happened, hay muertos is the correct one. And that somehow son letales, I don't know where that came from or why I started saying that. Not, not that it makes a big difference, but it just goes to show, you know, when I'm telling these stories, I'm telling them to you the way I remember them, which may or may not be 100% accurate. I think it was Milan Kundera, the Czech author, who said, memory is not the opposite of forgetting. Memory is a way of forgetting. Interesting point. Back to the paper. The moon was lost behind the clouds, behind the clouds, and the jungle was as dark as closed eyes. I can't recall the sequence of my thoughts, but I remember thinking of a story another traveler had told me a few weeks before. He had been spending a weekend alone at a friend's cabin in the Canadian Rockies. The cabin was perched high on a mountainside with a large picture window overlooking the valley. My friend was sitting at a table by the window when he noticed an eagle gliding in confident circles along the mountainside. With each cycle, the eagle moved closer to the cabin. As my friend watched, the eagle turned again and swung closer along the updraft and crashed straight into the window. Stunned, my my friend ran outside and found the eagle dead. What an amazing, tragic thing to see. He took the bird into the forest and buried it. Returning to the cabin, he sat down again at the table by the window and looked out over the valley and immediately saw that the image of the eagle with outstretched wings remained on the glass until the next rain washed the dust away, my friend said. That image lingered like a ghost. I'd been touched by the story when I first heard it, but standing there that night, trying to find my balance, I saw for the first time what the eagle had experienced. Everything had been perfect. There had been no doubt, no fear, no struggle. Only the light, the breeze, the turning. And in the final instant before impact, with his transparent end, the sudden image of the other, that was himself approaching, joining. As I was growing up, I witnessed the gradual suicide of my grandfather. He was diagnosed with diabetes shortly after my birth. Because he refused to stop drinking, his family spent the next 15 years or so watching him die. It was very graphic. It seemed that every time we went to visit, he'd lost another part of his body to gangrene. I don't remember when the first toes went, but I remember the rest. The foot, then up to the knee, then above the knee, then starting on the other leg. By the time he finally died, he'd lost both legs, his vision, most of his hearing, and I'm sorry to say, any compassion I could have felt for him. The man had been dead for a long time before he finally 
unwillingly confronted his own faded image reflected in that window. One of the mysteries of that night in Tikal is the fact that I didn't struggle against what I thought was happening. I didn't attempt to suck the poison out of my toe. I didn't decide to wait on the ledge until the other two travelers had found some help, which would have been probably the most sensible thing to do. The truth of the matter is, on some level, I welcomed it, this end, rather than some long, tedious slide into oblivion. I felt honored to die in such an interesting, natural way. I've always felt that I came into this life from a place of great serenity and bliss. I can't defend this feeling or argue its truth or merits. I only know that at the base of everything else, I sense peace and benevolence. I want to make it clear that I claim no unusual strength or insight that gives me this feeling. On the contrary, I feel I'm a recipient of some amazing gift which I can't understand or properly honor. In any case, I decided I'd try to get myself off the temple under my own power before I lost consciousness or control of my body. It would have been virtually impossible for anyone else to have carried me down. By this point, I knew that Anna wasn't really able to deal with what was happening. I learned then that it's easier to say goodbye if you're the one who's leaving, whether for vacation or for good. So I left Anna with the joking Englishman, and I set off with his friend, who had said very little. As we worked our way down toward the jungle floor, the fire climbed up my leg along the bone. Again, now see, here I am uh, taking a break. I don't know, looking at this now, if I was conscious when I wrote this, that I'm doing the up-down thing again. As we worked our way down toward the jungle floor, the fire climbed up my leg. So this is why if you want to really savor a great book, and I'm talking about fiction in general, a great novel, you can't read it once. You have to read it twice, at least, because there's so many things like this. There there are themes and recurring patterns and images and foreboding and things that happen at the beginning that suggest what's coming later that you can't possibly appreciate if you only read it once, right? You need, it's like films are the same. A really great film, you watch it 10 times, each time will be different and it will be a better experience each time. You can't just do it once. You know, that's like, you know, make love with a woman once. And that's it. You think you know her. You don't know her, man. Come on. Uh, Where am I? Uh, Yeah, so, okay, there's the fire climbed up my leg along the bone. Yeah, I remember that. Within half an hour, it had reached my hip and the muscles in my leg were frozen into a cramp. Over the course of the few hours it took us to make our way back to the archaeologist's camp, my throat swelled shut so that breathing became very difficult and swallowing impossible. My tongue also swelled and became numb so that it was difficult to speak what I thought were my last words. Ironically, the guy I was walking with probably wouldn't have understood anyway. It was now that I realized that he'd been very quiet before because he spoke very little English, and I didn't understand much Spanish beyond I'm muertos. 
Wandering lost through that sacred jungle, I thought a great deal about the choices I'd made that led me to this spot. I can honestly say that I expected my heart to freeze at any moment, but I felt a deep sense of peace and good fortune. I had loved and been loved by wonderful people. I had seen much of the world. I experienced the emptiness of money and power and had turned away and walked away from them willingly and stepped into the unknown. I was 27 years old and I had lived well. Needless to say, my body didn't die that night. By the time we found our way back to the camp, my throat was loosening a bit and I sensed that the poison was receding. We were taken to a local medic who explained that there are two types of scorpions in the jungle. I would have been dead within an hour if I had been stung by the other type. The sting of the alacran, this type, can kill a child or an adult with a weak heart, but he said, if I had made it this far, I'd be fine in a few days. Probably because he was accustomed to the local people's intense faith in pills, he gave me a few antibiotics or aspirin or something and a glass of water from a bucket in the corner. In my years of traveling in the tropics, I'd never drunk standing water, but I wasn't going to argue with this man who just told me I wasn't going to die that night. So I took his pills and washed them down gratefully. A couple weeks later, I had hepatitis. Don't drink the water. All right. And that's it. Yeah, the rest of it's just academic stuff. So uh, that took place in 1989. Uh, in the next uh, edition of Talking Out My Ass, we'll go back to 1983, back to Alaska. And uh, I'll get into uh, what it was like to work in a salmon cannery, <laughs> which, which was pretty, which was one of those things that was so bad it was good. So maybe that'll be, uh, that'll be the title of the next episode. So bad it's good. Thanks for listening. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you wanna say You're gonna die one day For example, I could kiss you Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say When everyone you've ever known Is headed for a headstone I don't wanna give the end away But we're gonna die one day Your body is an animal Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation Running from a confrontation Wondering what we ought to say
what you wanna feel Spend the night with me I'm gonna take you up in my arms And if we must go down We'll go singing to the smoke alarms We'll dance into the ground